Welcome everyone to our new um, Paradigm Project season highlights series. I'm super excited to share some of the highlights of our first season with you. This is the season that started it all. Um, for those of you who are new to this podcast, we hope that you enjoy it. The first episode we'll be highlighting, entitled The Great Conversation, was monumental. It's the first full episode the Paradigm Project ever recorded with its first set of hosts, Ava Gardner and Alan Robinson. This episode's guest was Fernando Seminario, Paradigm's principal. What is your favorite line of the Paradigm Declaration and why? I think uh, the line that stands out to me every time I hear or read it is the line that says, I honor the nobility in every person. That for me uh, resonates. I think it's at the heart of what we do here as a place of employment, as um, we view students and mentors or scholars and mentors, as we view the great ideas that we discuss and the authors and their words, we're always recognizing the greatness in other people. I wanted to talk more about your high school experience, specifically about how your high school experience affected your philosophy and paradigm going into working here at Paradigm High School. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, as I mentioned, there are some aspects of the, the system, so to speak, that that are part of who we are. Uh, so I grew up like a lot of other kids, viewing school as um, the means by which I can, if I worked hard and get good grades, have a good job, you know, get to a good college, have a good job, make money to support my family, all worthy things. I think my experience at Paradigm um, helped me see that there, were, there was more to it than that. That uh, learning for being able to help others uh, to improve the human condition, learning to improve our world, um, learning so that I can be of use to my society, to my family, to my community is a lot different than just learning so that I can get a good grade. So uh, that was another paradigm shift that I have made by being here at Paradigm. So going back to, you know, the Paradigm Declaration, what I love about Paradigm is, you know, we have this Paradigm Declaration that like sets up a standard of not what we're going to be doing as a school, but who you're trying to become as a person. You're like, I'm a Paradigm Patriot. I'm a free soul with the capacity to learn and grow. And I really like that. I think I was talking to a counselor that I have um, for my personal life. And she talked about making like um, my own declaration about who I, who I am and who I'm going to become. And so to have one as a school, I think is really valuable. In the declaration, it says, I engage in the great conversation of ideas. I had a question about that. So like, it doesn't say I engage in great conversations. It's the great conversation of ideas. And so my question is, is like, what is the great conversation of ideas? Like, is it a way of discussing it? Is, is it a form or is it, I, I don't know. Like, what is it? Well, that's a good question too. Um, the idea of the conversation is founded on... Uh, the concept or a belief that there is an innate yearning in men and women and humans to seek after truth. And so since the, you know, the dawn of time, those who have been really good at seeking after truth and then being able to articulate their ideas, their questions, and then we can now read their words, this is what uh, represents the great conversation of ideas is essentially a conversation of um, the great thinkers that has been taking place over time, over centuries. And now we have their words, we can read them. 
And we here at Paradigm and those who believe in the concept of the Great Conversation invite others to join in the conversation. Read what's been written, read the questions, understand what they're saying, and then insert your own ideas. Question their questions, uh, question their answers. In your own pursuit of truth, you have much to add to the great conversation of ideas. So you spoke about the holistic like study of truth. How is the great conversation specifically related to truth? As I, as I said, I think that's the, um, the catalyst for engaging in the, in the conversation is this yearning, this seeking for truth. Um, before that, I, I suppose one would have to acknowledge that there is an absolute truth. And, and here at Paradigm, that's what we believe. And so the great conversation becomes relevant because you view it as people's journeys towards finding truth that can be found everywhere. People that engage in the great conversation then become very well uh, read in lots of areas, not uh, experts or specialists, but very well-rounded in their knowledge of the sciences, the math, the art, everything, because they're viewing it all as one whole. Every, all truth is connected. Uh, the great thinkers that we read about did not study truth in subjects, in you know periods in the classroom that you go from one hour to the next. They are able to view it holistically and then make all the connections that I think just strengthens their ideas and their views. And that's the approach we take at our school too. It's really interesting. I have a, I have a question because... So you're saying that like it, we're able to read a lot of the great thinkers that are most of them who are dead now, but um, who you know were engaging in the great conversation of ideas or, or on this journey to find truth. I'm just I'm wondering if you think our society like now is like not engaging or if like the great conversation is dying because of like the culture and society that we live in. I don't know. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, that's a question that's actually part of the great conversation of our time is um, asking whether any of that's relevant today. And it very much is because when you look at the human condition, we still struggle and we still with, with the very same themes um, about freedom and liberty and virtue and trying to understand what beauty is and what is most important in life. What is life about? These are questions that the great thinkers have tried to answer that are still very much applicable to us today. In fact, I believe that a lot of the problems we see in our society today is directly linked to us not engaging in this great conversation of ideas. And in a way, we, we start to try to reinvent the wheel when there have been a lot of great ideas and thinkers that have... Uh, found great solutions to the problems that we have today if we would only engage in that conversation. How you're explaining the great conversation of ideas is completely different to like what I was thinking it was, or I guess not completely, but slightly different. Because I just imagine like engaging in a great conversation of ideas was just engaging in a discussion or talking about ideas. But like this, the way you're describing it, it's only, it's like a personal journey that's like almost shared amongst everybody, if that makes any sense. But now I'm wondering if I'm engaging in a great conversation of ideas or how, I, how I'm supposed to do that. So like, how do you personally engage in the great conversation of ideas? I can do a lot better at it, <laughs> I have to admit. You know, time is such a blessing and such a curse. 
Here at Paradigm, one of the things we do with our staff is that we've set up the School of Athens, is what we call it here, in homage to you know the, the great thinkers, the Greek philosophers mm-hmm. um, at the time of Athens, where we spend time in our workday, valuable time meeting together in groups and studying the classics with the sole purpose of diving into the great conversation of ideas. And it's fascinating to be together in a group and see the thoughts that come, like you said, the conversations happening in real time in the classroom as we're discussing and interpreting the writings of whoever might be. In, in our group now, we, we've been reading uh, some from Dante, uh, ah. Dante's Inferno. Yeah. So we are um, learning from each other as we interpret the writings of Dante. And you can't do that without bringing in things that make it relevant today, too. So in our conversation there are connections that people bring up to other books that we've read together or that they're reading in class to issues of our time. And and we learn and grow together as we look at at least this person's view of why things happen, why humans behave the way they do, why problems exist that are so common and similar to what we see today. I heard a rumor that you were reading the original Divine Comedy in Latin. I'd like to, our group leader... Um, is going to help me find the uh, the um, original. I still have to follow up on that. Um, I, because I speak Italian, I thought it'd be great to to read it in Italian. Oh, it's in Italian. Not Sorry. in original Latin, but um, in Italian, just because one of the things I've learned by studying and, and learning different languages is that they have more than just having different words to mean the same thing. They have different ways of expression entirely. Mm-hmm. And you can learn more about you know the original intent of authors or just deeper meanings by reading it in different languages, which I, which I'm, you know, happy I have the opportunity to do. So that's one that's been on my list for a long time, and both to read, period, but also to read in Italian. That is super freaking yeah. cool. Next up, we'll be hearing some of episode two of season one. This episode features someone who has played an instrumental role in developing the Paradigm Project since its conception, Mr. Keith DeBono. In this episode, our hosts and Mr. DeBono discuss the book *The Anatomy of Peace* by the Arbinger Institute. In society, we have a tendency to label literally everything, right? It's sort of what we do to make sense of the world around us. But labels, by definition, are very categorizing, right? They sort of put everything in a category and that separates one label from the other. We do it at Paradigm. We have mentors and scholars. We have administration, office staff. Everybody has it. It's all over the place. But sometimes what can happen is that we can rely too heavily on the label and forget about the underlying real categorization of person, human, you know what I mean? And so we tend to look at them as the label or as an object, as the anatomy of peace would say. And when you can do that, when you can look at somebody as an object, you don't have to be nice to them because they are inferior to you by definition. You know, you're not necessarily concerned with the feelings of a chair, right? But the point is that we have a tendency to treat people like objects because the labels facilitate that, right? We can, we can distance them from human beings because that's just my teacher. And, you know, you see this all the time because you go to a shopping center and you see a teacher there and you're like, Mr. So-and-so, what are you doing here? And your teacher says, uh, buying groceries. I actually remember I ran into Dallin at Harmon's. Yeah. You don't just plug yourself in at night. It was a completely separate Harmon's. Yeah, it was like in West away. Valley. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, this is my Harmon's. Like, this is my Harmon's. <laughs> he got very territorial. Um, you were buying oh. donuts. I was buying donuts. And yes. I also bought kombucha. 
Yes. And like, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to see your, your teacher, your mentor outside of the school because they're not a person to you. They're, they're an object. And at Paradigm, we really, really pride ourselves on adding value to our scholars, right? We want them to know that we love them, that we care about them, that we think that they are important, we want to listen to them. And all that value going into someone kind of can have two effects, right? The ideal effect is that it increases their self-worth and they take that self-worth and they do a value add to the next person they speak to. And that's awesome. The opposite effect is that they become a giant egotistical maniac (laughs) who interrupts everyone with bad jokes. Oh, good job. You do have a tendency to become entitled. When you get value given to you, it can lead to an entitlement complex. And it's a natural thing. Human beings in general, we look for worth, right? We want to be valued. And so part of the Camp Mariah movement is just to raise awareness to the fact that everyone that we interact with on any given day for any given length of time is a human being who is living a life that is at least as complicated as we are. And that's really what it is. It's just getting out there and not just spreading awareness, but living that truth. You know, so accepting that I am not any better or any worse than anybody else that I come across. And so that means that I should treat them with the dignity and respect that I would want to be treated. So my question is, so yeah, it's it's a really cool idea. You know, everybody has worth and I need to start seeing people as people and, you know, recognizing my own flaws and my pride and my entitlement. But how is this going to be like a movement? Right. So the movement part of this, I think, is actually just creating that culture in paradigm, right? And not just in paradigm. Paradigm is like the beginning. It's where we have influence right now. And it's where you have influence, where I have influence. Hopefully this podcast is going to be a great way to reach some people. But every change has to start somewhere, you know? And we're in a society right now where people really undervalue the opinions and even the actions of teenagers. And that's to their detriment. Because in my life, I have learned a ton from every student I've interacted with. And that's one of the greatest joys of being an educator is that I get to learn over and over and over again, not just what it's like to be human, but what it's like to experience anxiety and fear and stress and love and joy and passion. By the time you get to be an adult, right? You've experienced a lot of really amazing things, which is awesome. But you have fewer of the best thing in your future, right? When you're a young person, every time you experience the greatest thing ever, it just keeps getting greater and greater, right? Your first love is an incredible, amazing experience. And then your second love is a new and incredible, amazing experience. And it doesn't diminish you or love or anything just because you're young. In fact, because you've never experienced something so intense, it is far more intense than a new love for an adult who may have experienced many in their life, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm totally off track, but (laughs) the movement comes from taking these experiences, creating this culture of people who care about each other, who treat each other and see each other as people, And it starts from young people because one of the things Naomi Peace teaches us is that the only way to create a change in somebody else is to show and be that change yourself, right? So the the more often you treat your teacher or your mentor like a person, the more often that they'll do the same to you because what's the alternative? You treat them nicely and they treat you like like a chair. And through that, like your perspective and the way you view them will literally change. We'd like to believe that we can do something and not feel anything 
But like, if you're going to be kind to someone and choose to understand them, you're going to learn to love them. That's what I think is super cool. Right. And I mean, that's my favorite thing about the anatomy of peace, right? The anatomy of peace presumes that the natural instinct of man is to love. It is to be positive and to respect. And that's so great. It talks about when you get into conflict, the primary reason is because you've committed an act of self-betrayal. You've betrayed your natural instinct to love, to share, to honor the person in front of you. And you have, um, I think the story is of, of Yusuf when he's a young kid. You guys remember the story? Yes. No, I've never read The Anatomy of Peace. <laughs> I know. That's why I want to be asking the questions. I got like questions. I'm like, what's going on here? Okay, so one of the, one of the main instructors, Yusuf, right? He is in um, his home country and he is on the streets, living on the streets, and there is a blind man who is, oh, I can't remember if he's Jewish or Palestinian, but he's of the opposite of those two to Yusuf. Is it his name Malachi? Malachi, yes. Yes. So Malachi um, dropped his jar of coins, right? He's a blind old man. Yes. <laughs> and Yusuf betrays himself and ignores Malachi because of their difference in, in social and religious status and instantly feels horrible about it and begins to actually belittle Malachi and blame Malachi. And he realizes later on in life that the reason this happened is not because Malachi is worse than him. It's because he betrayed his instinct to help, right? And so that as a foundation for a movement to me, I mean, th there is no better. If the foundation for your movement is that love and respect is the natural response to the things that happen around you, you will inherently do more good in this world than you will take away. So with movements, it's all about an actionable thing, right? So you have this really impressive backbone um, and moral foundation to base action off of. With your movement, what... What are you encouraging people to do and what are you doing to make a positive change in the world? So firstly, I want to say it's our movement, right? We're all people. This is our movement. And um, it's, sure, we're starting at a paradigm, but I really hope that it goes beyond that, you know, and it starts to spread because I think it make a really positive change. But to your point, what are the actions? The hardest thing to do when you have a relationship in which you've seen somebody as an object, right, as an obstacle to overcome or as a thing you have to fix, right, is to switch your mindset over to seeing them as a person. It's so difficult to do. And it's a very internal action, right? We don't see that action physically. There's not a switch that you flick next to your ear that turns your vision to seeing people as people. Oh, what are you talking about? Right? It's right here. It's right. <laughs> you Found don't it. have that? <laughs> but, oh, what's wrong um, with your switch? <laughs> so it's not a physical action that you can see, but it is a profound action that has a really amazing effect. And so the first step, I believe, is to find someone who you have treated like an object and just have a conversation with that person. Nothing to do with your previous experience. Literally something as simple as, what did you do this weekend? Or how are you feeling today? And genuinely caring about what their response is because you care about that human. That is the first step in the Camera Eye movement. We've talked about this before, just you and I, but I feel like that has so much room to to make people like your little project like i'm such a good person because i can be nice to someone today or i can make their day better like how how do i go about you know seeing people as people and following the the camp mariah movement without turning people into my personal little projects absolutely i think 
the number one thing is awareness, right? If you are turning someone into your project, right? <sighs> you could have a project where you renovate your house. You could have a project where you are trying to fix up a motorbike, right? Projects are done on objects by people, right? So if you're working on a project of yourself, that's one thing like the paradigm project. But if you're working on somebody else as your project, you're already seeing them as an object, right? So this movement, this idea, whatever you want to call it, it can't originate from me. That's why I say it's not my movement. It can't originate from anywhere except for in the heart of the individual who's doing it. You have to really mean it. You have to really want to see people as people. And you have to understand that you may not get any benefit at all from seeing a particular person as a person. They may never come around and treat you like a person. But what you're doing is you're honoring the nobility of that person but you're also honoring your own ability. You're honoring the fact that you are a person and that's enough. Episode three is entitled, I Can Do Hard Things. This episode features Miss Arneson, who was a music teacher at Paradigm, who has since left us, but is still much beloved. What is a goal and how do you set one like that you can actually accomplish? Because I think with me, um, I'll, I'll be passionate about or not passionate. I'll be even just excited about the idea of doing something being like or with the let's use this example. So yesterday we ran the carnival, the Pennyworth Carnival. Super fun, right? And I had signed up to run the cotton candy machine because <laughs> I was like, that sounds fun. It was not oh, fun she was at stressed first. The whole time, <laughs> <laughs> it was terrifying. It was big. It would rattle and it would jam and it would smoke a ton, and it was really scary. And I couldn't wrap the cotton candy well at all at first. I was just frustrated. I was like, "Why did I sign up for this?" But it's too late now. The carnival's already began. Nobody else knows how to run it. Um, <laughs> I was right there, Ava. That's true. Daniel knew how to run it as well. Way. Daniel was the exception. Um, but like, as for the rest of cabinet, nobody else knew how to run it. So I couldn't be like, Hey, come take over for me because I don't want to do this. Eventually, like I learned how to actually work it and stuff. But the, the point of the example is to be like, you know, you have an idea and you think it's gonna be super fun and then it isn't. And so my expectations weren't met probably because of poor planning and poor execution. So how do you set a goal in a way so you can have good execution and good planning? that makes sense. Yeah. I think there's a couple things here. So you committed last night to running the cotton candy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you fulfilled your commitment and it was not as fun as you thought it was. Cotton candy yeah. does sound fun. It's fluffy and sugary. It should be fun. It was fun near the end, but like, <laughs> did you start to get it near the end? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 But you don't want to be a cotton candy runner at carnivals for the rest of your life. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so it sounds like you accomplished your goal and it just wasn't as fun at the beginning but you worked through it and you accomplished it and you kind of went on that slump right like here's the <laughs> cotton candy machine i'm so excited this is not actually fun i'm gonna push through and, and it ended up okay and then yeah and then you realize that don't volunteer for the cotton candy next time <laughs> um and i think that's okay with goals to do that i think setting goals is a learning experience and we set goals that are way too big and maybe goals that are way too small which is why it's okay to constantly reevaluate them a good goal has steps to accomplish goal. Here's the big goal that I want to accomplish. And here's the steps I'm going to take 
to do them. We want cotton candy, so we need to rent the machine and we need to watch a YouTube video on how to make cotton candy. And- the YouTube video screwed me over. Don't look it up. <laughs> I went in there and was like, Ava, stop doing this. Do this instead. And it was just fine after that. So don't watch the YouTube video. Do a couple trials and errors, right? Yeah. So we kind of have steps on how to do it. And part of the learning process is just being okay to fail sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you brought up the carnival, though, because I think the cabinet has showed us some good goal setting just with penny wars in the last couple weeks and month. There's a goal of how much we want to raise. And you guys have done a lot of different things to raise that money and you've motivated the students and or scholars and you've done events and you did Sadie's and there's been some things that didn't work. Some things have been canceled or some things like just didn't work out or maybe there's part of the carnival that didn't get in, but a lot of things worked and a lot of things you learned in the long run and hopefully we meet the goal. But if we don't meet the financial goal that we set, we still did a lot of really good things and learned a lot in the process. And that's part of the purpose of setting a goal is doing the good things along the way. Because if we set a goal, we never really truly fail, even if we don't reach what we thought we were going to reach. And sometimes when we set a goal, what we think we want to reach changes in the accomplishing of the goal. That's really interesting. Because going back to the cotton candy, very passionate about it. (laughs) I think part of the reason I was so upset was because near the end, I was having fun. I did like doing it, but the machine is gone. We rented the machine and I no longer have the cotton candy machine. And so I can't sit and practice and get good at it. <laughs> and and like, how do I deal with that? How do I, how do I deal with like the disappointment with disappointment? Like, why didn't I start practicing better technique earlier? Or like, why, why wasn't I just better <laughs> while right. I had the opportunity? Well, that's interesting because we, sometimes we get so focused on like, why didn't I do this thing? And why, why am I not better? Why am I not to the point I want to be at? And I think it's okay. Like if you set goals higher than you're going to meet, you're still going to be farther than if you hadn't set the goal anyway. So it's the point of us actually wanting to be better and actually trying to be a better person and trying to become better at the skills that we want to be better at. And sometimes we're disappointed in ourselves and I think we need to get over that, get over the disappointment and be like, I did the best I can. Well, if you did the best you can, <laughs> you'd say I did the best I can and then move forward, set a new goal, even higher than the last one, and then just become better from there. So I totally agree. That was very wise. Very well said. <laughs> Something that I think is hard is when we don't get to the goals that we thought we would get to, it's really hard to like be okay with that. And I don't know where to go. And sometimes it hurts. Or like a missed opportunity. Right. And you like, you had the chance. And if you were just a little bit better, or if you had done something just a little bit differently, that goal might have been met, but it didn't. How do you get around that? Like, how do you get past that to keep moving forward and to set a new goal? How do you stop dwelling on the pain of not accomplishing that goal and move on? I feel that all the time. <laughs> I think you said it though, dwelling in the pain and what's the purpose of pain? That is a good question. I wonder that a lot. I've dealt with like grief and loss in the past year and I'm like, why is this happening? Why why can't I just like not get over it or, you know, there's a story. I don't, I don't remember where it's from. I think it was probably some general conference or something. Um, For those of you who do listen to general conference, this, this man's young son died and he was just grieving and it was just awful. And he was just praying. He's like, why can't this pain go away? Like it, it's been a little while. Like, why can I just 
stop being so terribly depressed and sad and missing my son and grieving. And the thought came to his head. It's like, okay, but if you were to no longer have grief, you would lose every memory of your son you had with him. And that's something that I've been learning too, is like with my own loss and grief, like, yeah, it hurts and it's confusing and it brings a lot of like anxiety and other problems. But like, if it were to just go away, I would miss all the love I felt for that person or all the, all the time and memories and things I spent putting into like a relationship with them. And so I think that can be like translated over to like when you fail or you're upset with yourself for missing an opportunity. Yeah, the pain sucks and like you can't get out of your head of like, why didn't I do it? But you have to remember like why you're feeling that way because yeah, you didn't realize in the moment that that's something you wanted or something that you needed. You had those bad feelings because you weren't serious enough about something or you you didn't you take responsibility when you needed to or pursue your education when you needed to. Those those bad feelings that you're experiencing are a lesson and they're a reminder that it was something you maybe needed to do or something that you continue like you need to continue to do or search for. Like, yeah, you missed it now, so don't do it in the future. Like it's just a learning experience. How do you take the lesson from that and deal with the pain and not just like focus on it because it's so prevalent all the time? For me, I feel like that's one of the signs of a strong character, right? We can take pain and we can wallow or we can sink in it or we can use it as like a trampoline to jump to something higher and make our pain useful instead of something that hurts us, even though it is uncomfortable to go through the pain. But what if you're not a strong person? <laughs> like, what if you're the weakest person alive and you're like, anything inconvenient happens and you're just like dying inside. You're like, ah, you know, you're like, <laughs> I feel like there has to be a decision to actually want to move forward. And there has to be some sort of inspiration to keep you going through that pain. I'm thinking a lot about uh, Lewis's uh, grief observed. He didn't want what his father gave to him for his kids. He wanted to give them a better life, and that helped him push through his grief and to inspire him to be a stronger person and to be a better father and to be just better in general, to be happier mm -hmm. and to set, be able to set new goals and move forward. And I think that's important. It comes down to a lot of responsibility because, like, I've seen people who, you know, maybe didn't have the best like upbringing or life. And they're like, I don't want that for my kids. And then they go through something similar that their parents went through. And then they become like their parents, like, cause that's like the opposite end of what you were just talking about. So it really just comes down to like, how responsible are you, are you going to be like, how, how much, Oh, what's the word where you like take responsibility for your actions, like where you're honest about who you are. Integrity. Yeah. Like, it's hard though because like it sucks realizing that you're not a good person or you're not the person that you want to be that you think you are that's what hurts like to realize that like you've hurt a lot of people or that you're continuing to hurt a lot of people through your actions and like how do you even like start doing like fixing right. that yeah like how yeah painful to be honest with yourself about yourself right yeah but what i loved about your story daniel is there seemed like there was a moment when he made a decision right and that was a pretty big life experience that hopefully only happened once in his life. But we could make small decisions like that every single day in, in the small things that we do, like the cotton candy or with you know deciding I'm going to practice today, even if I have to feed myself goldfish every three times or something like that. 
Episode 4 is entitled Honor the Nobility. This episode features Nicole Cavallero, who is a teacher at Paradigm who teaches health and yoga. She is the inventor of the Sola Yoga Method, and she's a mindfulness master. It's amazing when you realize that you have the power to choose your thoughts, and the thoughts that you choose can elevate your consciousness to the point where you feel love towards everyone, you feel peace in your future, you feel peace with your past, which isn't easy to do when, you've, when you're going through a divorce, you know? You're like, duh, why did I marry him? I mean, that sounds... Anyway, no, but it makes sense. sense. You have regrets, right? You have regrets, right? It was just so absolutely necessary for my health, my physical health and my mental health to choose every thought that I thought. And coming to Paradigm, actually Paradigm was like such a a haven for me because I have always loved my job, but I loved it even more coming here because I like, I really believe that service is the number one reason for humans. We have to serve. I mean, to like feel fulfilled, right? Mm -hmm. To fulfill our life purpose, we have to find our way to serve. And so coming here was like very therapeutic for me, but, but yeah, that the mindfulness practice, I, I had to do it or I maybe would have gotten cancer. I don't know, but I was in a lot of pain and waking up and feeling every joint in my body, like ache was horrible. I'm like, what? I eat so healthy. It doesn't matter. My mind was a mess. But I think, I think you know, you sharing your story like shows like even like balance and things like this exists outside of our mind. Like it is a universal truth. Like it really feels like when life gets you down, it gets you down. Like I'll share some of my experiences in July. So, you know, I was, it was kind of rough because school had been taken away from me and that was a huge deal for me because I'm a social person. And so I was stuck at home and I was just not dealing well with it. And I hated like over quarantine. Yes. Over quarantine. I hated online school. I was super negative. I wasn't seeing anybody And then in July, I had my cousin who was very close to take his own life. So that was also a shock. It was just awful and it felt awful. And then, you know, I started getting negative. I'm like, because I didn't have an initial reaction to it. And I was like, what is going on? What's wrong with me? So I, I, I started to turn in. I'm not seeing anybody. What's wrong with me? And then two weeks later after going through that, or I started to develop really, really terrible anxiety to the point where I'd have to drug myself to go to sleep every night and I couldn't eat anything. I lost like 10 pounds and I like, it was just the worst. And then I went through my first breakup, which is always the hardest because it's just teenager emotions and you don't know how to let go of something. And then it, the regrets came, like you were saying, like, why did I even get into the situation that I'd have to get myself out of? And why is it happening now? And all these terrible things. And I found myself for like a minute choosing to sink rather than swim because I was like, why is this all happening now? Why? Like, this is so unfair. This is so stupid. And like, I just wanted to lay down and die. (laughs) I was like, this is the worst. But I think it comes to like making decisions that are going to help you in the long run. And I think that's the hardest part. It was like, do I go and to the doctor and get on medication, which I was really against for a long time because I thought they messed up your brain and stuff. It's like, do I go and get on medication do I break up with this person? Like how, and then it all just like came flooding to me and I was like, I'm going to explode. The stress that I'm carrying is damaging my body and damaging who I am. But then it's making those conscious decisions and they always seem to happen in the worst times of your life. And that's why it's super important to prepare yourself beforehand I've noticed ever since then, because that was like, I was just not taking care of myself. And now I've been starting to do that. So when 
another bad situation in my life happens because it's going to happen, I can make those mindful decisions to help myself get out of it rather than just not exist anymore. If that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. you've got some good tools yeah. that you can take those tools with you for your whole life. So looking back on that, that trying situation, it's like, it's like our perspective, right? And when we have to remember that too, because like you said, things are going to be, the road ahead is not, it's not like you're like, whoo, I'm free and clear. There's no more bumps. I know exactly where I'm going. Right. And so to be able to just be okay with the challenge and know that you learned some really powerful tools that you're going to be able to apply next time around when you come into bumps in the road. Yeah. I mean, that's like mental health 101, right? Is knowing that you have those tools moving forward. Yeah. And that you were able to dig yourself out. Yeah. I mean, I needed a lot of help, like a ton of help from my family. But then like, you know, you see the, I got like the gratitude from like, oh, I have family. Ava, thanks for sharing that. It actually, that vulnerability, like so many people, especially during COVID were experiencing the same struggles. So thanks for, for sharing that with us. Yeah. yeah, it was really powerful. Yeah. And it's just important to remember that again, because it is a progress and that there's going to be bumps in the road, that we just have to have that perspective of everything's going to be okay. And we are okay exactly where we are and really believe that and really believe that. Otherwise, anxiety will take over faster than you can spell anxiety. It's so quick. It is. It's I'm so quick sure because again, that monkey mind, that monkey mind can be your master. And again, if you look at it in those two different states of consciousness and be able to look at the thoughts and say, are these true? Are these real? Do you think that's what you're trying to balance? Are you trying to balance like your perception of the world? I think it all comes down to perception and the lens that we see the world through. So like that would be applicable for everybody, scholars, working professionals, Everyone. Senator Mitt Romney, yeah. anyone. <laughs> I mean, depression and anxiety are the leading causes of disability. I want to say in the world, but it's definitely in the United States. Yeah. People are not working because they're so depressed and they're so anxious. So Amen. something has to change. Something has to change. And I do feel strongly that it is going to be a simple approach because, you know, we've kind of exhausted the the human doing, 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 go. It's not about doing more. It's about actually doing less and coming back into ourselves and just finding that that unity with our higher consciousness. Like, you know, in the in the 12 steps, they call it the higher power. In Christianity, we call it Christ consciousness. In Buddhism, they call it Buddha consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's just like we have these different states of consciousness and that we have the power to choose and creating space in our lives to be able to choose that. I think that everyone will will realize how darn amazing we all are. I really like how you said it's about doing less. And so I want to give the people listening something to go away with to practice, to try. So like, And so it's about doing less, which I always forget. What is like one or two things that you think they could practice that could help them be more mindful or balanced in their day-to-day life? I think if we were to take a poll among all the scholars and probably the mentors and administrators, one of the ch most challenging things that brings the most stress into our lives is time management and procrastination right? So how are we supposed to actually slow down and do less when we procrastinate? So again, I think the morning piece is key. And for all of you non-morning people out there, and it's especially hard for teenagers because your brains are actually changing to want to sleep in. So the morning thing is hard. I understand that. But what is so important about the morning routine is that 
that is how you start your day. It's like you are planting the seeds for the garden that you're going to grow throughout the day first thing in the morning. Tell me about your morning routine. Do I not need to hit the snooze button three times? Do I need to? You know why the snooze button is such a problem? It's because it sets, puts you out of integrity right away. You're That's like, well, I set wow. my alarm for 6 a.m., but I'm not going to get up till 6.24 or 6.27, depending if it's an eight or nine minute snooze, right? You're like you're, you are allowing yourself to not be in integrity with your with your intention, right? So uh, my morning r- routine starts the night before. So before I go to bed, I, vi- I mean, I have a prayer and I read and then I visualize my morning. I'll be like, okay, I actually tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up. I go in the kitchen. I drink my two glasses of lemon water with lemon juice in it. I drink the stuff called greens first, just a green powder. I go into my, I sit on my couch and I do this. It's called savor. It's pretty specific. The S stands for silence. So depending on how much time I have, if I have 20 minutes, then I divide the five by 20. If I have five minutes, then it's just one minute for each letter. The S stands for silence. I just sit in silence for one minute and I time it because otherwise you're like, How much time is that? The A stands for affirmations. So I literally tell myself good things like, I am powerful. I am inspirational. I tried affirmations and I felt a little bit schizophrenic. (laughs) I was like, I'm going crazy. Wow. It takes, you know, the repetition. It's all about the repetition, right? Because, you know, a few times you might be like, why am I telling myself this? But over time, you'd start to lay down those neural pathways and you start to believe it. I so, 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, like, well, it's literal science, that, like, so you have books. to agree. It is. Okay. <laughs> it's brain science. Yeah. Hey. Brain science from the little engine that could. Totally. He said, you think you can? You, you can, can do it. You can. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and then the V stands for visualize, and that's where I visualize my day. I visualize each one of my classes. I visualize interactions with students that I may be struggling with or whatever. Visualize. Whatever I want to happen, I literally visualize it. E stands for exercise. So I do this weird exercise called rebounding. It's on a little mini trampoline. And I do that for at least 10 minutes. It just wakes up my body. And then the R stands for reading and reflecting. So I either read or journal. And it's literally, even if it's just, if I literally have five minutes, I will do each one of those for one minute. But it's just the, the repetition of that. And it just gets my brain going in the right direction. That sounds so powerful. Yeah, it is powerful. It's actually, I didn't invent it. I can't take credit for it. It's from this book called The Miracle Hour. And that's kind of his whole theory. Do you of, know who wrote uh, it? Uh, I can't remember. Oh, we can look it up like for right now. <laughs> the Miracle Hour. But it's good. It's just so powerful. Because our mornings are, I mean, we start our day in the mornings. Everything starts in the morning. And every day is new. No matter how bad your day was before, You always start with a fresh mind, right? Like you don't really carry that much over in your mind after you sleep, unless you don't sleep, which is a real problem. I think it was Da Vinci and he was like, I hate sleeping. This sucks. And so he did like 20 minute naps every two hours. So he got like six hours of sleep or something like that. And he just ran on a 24 hour clock and just like never stopped. And um, I feel like I would spontaneously combust after about three days. That sounds like an incredible waste of time. What? Sleeping like that. Because I feel like there is definitely a reason we are not nocturnal. And so to just like... It's true. He's doing too much. It's called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, by the way. It's a good one. The final episode we'll be highlighting is called We the People. And it features Asher Cox, a former seminar mentor at Paradigm, and Sarah Arneson, who was earlier featured on our episode three. 
They'll be discussing the Constitution, what it actually is, and why we should care, what it allows us to do, and the rights it protects. So one thing I think we miss about the Constitution, because it's super dry and super boring. Same. <laughs> it's a list of facts. Like, how many representatives do we get and how long do they serve? It's literally a list of facts. So sometimes it's hard to find, I think it's hard to find principles within it. So we have to know a little bit about why it was written in the first place. And one thing I want to point out that Locke really, really drives home that Jefferson clearly wanted to know was um, types of law. So Locke breaks out three different types of law. And first he talks about natural law, that there's nothing any human on the planet could change. If you jump off a rock, you go down. That's natural law. Okay, it's on the planet and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, some people argue that if I, we go into space and we've broken the law of gravity, but what I've done, we have not broken the law of gravity. Gravity didn't go away. I figured out how to use the law of gravity in a different way because the whole idea of space travel is understanding the law of gravity more. The other kind of law that Locke talks about is legislative law. And that's the actual laws we have to follow. The speed limit is legislative law. I elected a legislator. They wrote law. I have to follow it. The other kind of law that Locke really drives home is, is called positive law, coming from the root posit, which means a foundation of an argument, like the premise of an argument. So positive law is law that governs the lawmaker. So the lawmaker has to follow certain rules. And that's what the Constitution is. It is not legislative law. There's nothing in there that I could actually follow or do. There's no action I can do to follow what it says. It's law telling my lawmakers what they can and cannot do. And that's very important because that's the thing that's been missing in other governments. When you have a king or even a group of people that are working together for, I mean, like aristocracy, basically, if they don't have rules that tell them what they can and cannot do, then they can do anything. So the beauty of the Constitution is that our lawmakers are under the law. They are not above the law. We are all under the same, we are equal under the law, which is kind of the point. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Ta-da! We made it happen. So it's really important in, in looking at the Constitution to say, is my lawmaker following this law? Because if they are not, then I need to remove their power, and we need someone in who is virtuous, who will obey laws. And we tend to get kind of haughty when we get a little power. We say, well, I mean, you have to obey the law, but... I made the law. Like, that makes me equal to the law. And it does not. So that brings up the other principle that you have that you said, the separation of powers. And when we separate powers, what we've just done is added a check on power itself. And that is one of the biggest manifestations of, of a principle in the Constitution is a check on power that it can stop. We get to control who has power, how much they have, and when we take it away which is a huge power that the Constitution gives us. More than what it says we can do, the fact that it exists and that I can say how much power you have and when and how you use it gives me power over my representatives who are in turn telling me what I can and cannot do. That is a huge check between the people and the representative. I tell them what they can do so that they can tell me virtuous actions that I can do. Which, back to your question, let's break this down. I want to skip to Article 5, I hope. Um, which is the amendment process, such a powerful thing to put in your constitution. And we talk about the founders and this is our root and they knew everything and they were well studied, which is absolutely true. They're the best. However, they accepted that they were also making mistakes and that times would change, that they were dealing with problems that we would not be dealing with later and that they could not foresee the problems that were coming. So to put in a whole section in your rule book that says 
you can change this, be careful with it, but you can, is a huge compliment to their humility and their ability to understand what they were actually creating and the people they were influencing, which is important for us to understand that it's not a perfect document and that we can change it and that we should control the powers of the people telling us what to do, making laws. Okay, there's one article down. Can I just add to that? I think just to summarize for me mostly, but... It sounds like what you're saying is the founding fathers established a nation that is ruled by law and not a person. And even within the Constitution, which, of course, they wrote, like they penned these words, they created as part of it a law about how to alter the document so we can continue to be ruled by law. Huge, huge, huge. Which takes us to Article 6, <laughs> which is the Supremacy Clause, which it says the Constitution is the law, is the highest law of the land. There is no human being who is above the Constitution. Not ever. And there cannot be. Which means we are actually equal under the law. If there can be a human that can escape the law, then we have a king. And whatever, however he wants to spell his title or whatever he wants to call it, we have something else that's out of our control. And the Supremacy Clause protects that limited power that the government has. And limited government is like the thing. It's the new idea that the founders came up with. Which makes being an elected leader a really sacred responsibility, which is why we promise to follow the Constitution when we are sworn into office. Which takes us to Article 1. (laughs) (laughs) So according to Locke, legislative power is the greatest power any government official has. It's the grandiose power of powers. And legislation means, or to legislate means to make law. So basically, the legislator gets to tell you what you can and cannot do, which is a kingly power. It's very important, and it's very easy to get too far, and it's very sacred. And in fact, Locke uses the word fiduciary over and over and over again every time he describes any legislation, which means trusted. The core of legislation is trusted. If I don't trust you, you better not be telling me what to do. And I better not choose somebody to tell me what to do who I do not trust. So... Um, So that's why Article 1 is the legislative branch, because it is the most important. And they have the most guidelines, they have the most instructions, because making laws to tell other people what to do is extremely important and can be the most dangerous. Which is interesting. It's a huge branch of the government. There's two houses in the legislative branch, and it has the most elective officials on the national level of government. And it takes forever to make a law because the process to make a bill into a law takes a really long time and has a lot of limits on what can start where and who can do what. Not to mention that the executive branch could come in and just say, you're going to stop for a little bit. Right. Which is, again, to check. They can just do. I mean, there's so many checks on the legislative power because they're telling you what to do. And I think the the Constitution, like what you said, what the executive can do, errs on the side of them not being able to tell you what to do, as opposed to giving them more power. It stops them more often than it helps them. Which gives power back to the people, right? It's assuming the people can govern themselves and we need fewer laws because we take responsibility as citizens. Which is one of the core principles, Ava, that you brought up earlier, is that we're based on morality. The point of the legislative law is to help me figure out what morality means, not to tell me what to do. Otherwise, we could just have a king if we're just going to, like, command people around. That's what communism basically is, is to force morality. This idea is saying we're going to mess up a bunch of times, but you're actually going to be moral in the end. It's going to be harder. Plus, your fingers are going to be so entwined in it. It's not really our problem. (laughs) Just kidding. That's not true. (laughs) I think it's important when we're talking about the legislative branch. um, 
in relationship to the Constitution and the national government, that we remember that the two houses are elected differently. And that's another important check on powers, right? Every state gets two senators, and then the House of Representatives gets a proportionate number to their population, which just gives more power back to the states. It shows that the founding fathers really wanted to protect the supremacy of the states and the supremacy probably isn't the right word. Well, I think it's a pretty appropriate word. I mean, it's a little extreme, but the whole point is like, this is for the people. And so it is kind of like the supremacy of the states. There should be no, I don't know, there should be no supremacy in the legislative branch. It's just completely their duty to, you know, be for the people. Right. And be responsible back to the states. Yeah. Right? They shouldn't be making a law that the states could have made for themselves. They should only be making laws that are too big for the states to be able to make because they deal with two different states or something that deals with all of us with trade or something like that. But there's not a lot that they need to take care of. The states should take care of most of it. Which I think is one of the core principles of the Constitution is local government. And it's easy to ignore that one because national government is so much more efficient. It's not very efficient, but it's certainly more efficient. And the more we rely on it, the more efficient it becomes. But again, with our history and where we came from, the local governments were what created the national government. It was very, very much built one step at a time from bottom up in experience and even in its structure. And so they really wanted to honor the local government. The smaller you can deal with a situation, the better the situation is dealt with. And the more you're dealing with the people who will have the consequences of that and who were involved in the situation. So if you can deal with it between two people, that's better than any external group. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to our first Paradigm Project Highlights episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, then stay tuned. Throughout the season, we'll be highlighting more of our earlier seasons for you to enjoy. Thank you. If you want to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at paradigmhigh.org, or you can find us on Instagram at the Paradigm Pod. Don't forget to engage in the great conversation of ideas. Mm-hmm.